Well, it is a privilege to be with you this week. It's a privilege to gather and open our Bibles together to study every week. And after last year, we certainly do, do not want to take for granted this wonderful privilege. It is the new year. My prayer for you, for our church, is that the Lord would be glorified to uh, give us another banner year. I believe last year, in spite of all the, the disease and death and problems in society and political turmoil, uh, that in spite of all that, God did, uh, He was glorified to give Makakilo Baptist Church a, a banner year, a joyful year, and such a wonderful time to be at NBC in these days. If you would, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look at a number of different texts today, a number of different Scripture passages today, do something a little bit different, as I mentioned in my prayer but I felt like the text here in Hebrews 1 is a great place to start. It sort of combines this idea of the revelation of the Old Testament and the revelation of the New Testament in Jesus through His appointed men. Back early in my ministry here, I was advised and I decided that since we have such a large number of you that are indeed here temporarily, you're here on assignment and we'll be leaving at some point, that we needed to, I was advised that we needed to periodically go through who, we're, who we are, what we're all about, to articulate from this pulpit who we are as a church, what our philosophy is, what is our identity. So in years past, just, just about every year, I would begin the year with some minor study, just a several-week study on our identity. A lot of times it dealt with ministry philosophy or really more specifically preaching philosophy. And I've done that pretty much every year since I've been here, over, over the years, maybe six or seven times over ten, more than ten years that I've been here. I haven't done it in a couple years. In fact, the last time I did it was two years ago in our Sunday school class. We did a series called Who We Are, and it's been three years since I've done it from this pulpit on Sunday morning. So I thought it was high time that we do this again, except this time I think we're going to expand it a little bit and do a broader study, simply because we, that's where we left off in our study of Matthew, right? Here's Peter making a confession, and I thought it'd be good to spend some time here in these first weeks of 2021 studying what our church is all about, who we really are, what are basic Christian beliefs, what are the standards upon which our church uh, is built, what are the truths that we confess so over the next 8 to 12 weeks, I don't know exactly how long it'll take, but over the next 8 to 12 weeks, we're going to cover this subject, who we are. My objective will be to go to those passages that articulate for us those things that define us, that are core to our identity. My hope is that this will clarify some things for us, this will make it clear upon the foundations upon which we stand. And my prayer is that this series will serve us sort of in the long run, long after I preach this, whether for those who are coming into our church or those who need to do a little more study about what it is to be a Christian and a member of NBC. So today we begin to understand who we are by stating this basic fact, we are Christian. And what does that mean to be a Christian? I'm sure there are many different definitions of Christian out there, but what does it mean when we say we are Christian? And over the first few weeks, we're going to look at this, answer this question. What does it mean we are Christian? Now, I hope to answer that 
at least beginning today and the next few weeks. Let me read to you Hebrews 1. This will give you a hint on the direction where we're going today if you've not already picked up on that by the reading of our text earlier and the songs that we sang. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers, to our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the Word of God. Many years ago, at the very beginning of my ministry, I learned a vital lesson, a truth that would actually guide me all throughout my ministry, my time when I learned it as a youth minister and then later as a church planter and now as a pastor. What is that truth? It's simply this, God's people love God's Word. There's all kinds of people who attend the church, right? I mean, on a Sunday morning especially, there's all kinds of people who may even be here or be watching. There are, there are visitors that are people who are sort of seeking to fulfill some kind of uh, need they may sense in their heart or in their lives. People interested in just religious things, they may come or attend or watch or, or dabble with religion. People are, who are trying to just better their lives morally, they're trying to find answers from a moral stand, standpoint. Even folks with maybe a little more nefarious reasons attend church, don't they? I mean, there are some people, I, I've been told by people uh, that some people attend church just to, to make sales, maybe they're insurance salesmen or car salesmen or something, and they're trying to just find some clients. Other people come because they find a small group of people where they can find some level of popularity or, or power. And so on a Sunday morning, though this is the church and though we firmly believe, and we'll get this later on in this extended study, uh, the church is indeed church. It's supposed to be a bunch of Christians gathering together. There are always those with mixed reasons, people who may not even be true believers who gather together. But what, something that I realized early in my ministry, as I, as I looked at the people that I really respected, that had really strong character in their hearts, people who seemed to, to speak with the grace of Christ, people who seemed to have godlike attitudes, people who seemed to be the most Christian of all the Christians I knew in the church, what I realized about them is they all had something in common. They loved God's Word. And that's true of you. As I look around, the people I most respect in our church, the people who seem to have the, the character that I want to emulate, the character that I want to pursue, the, the people who seem to have the best theology are people who have a deep, abiding love for God's Word. I think of it like I would think of a groom. He loves the sound of his bride's laugh. He loves to hear her speak. He loves to be with her. He loves to spend hours on the phone with her. He loves to listen to her and to speak to her. He loves her, and therefore he loves her words. True Christians, true believers have been transformed by the power of God's Word. And so what, resi what resides down deep in them, even when they're backsliding, even when they're a little bit lukewarm, what resides down deep inside is a love for God's Word. Again, it's not perfectly. We all backslide. But even in their times of failure, even in their times of lukewarmness, even in their times of, of spiritual disorder, down deep inside is a desire to fan the flame of their first love of God 
and they do do that by immersing themselves in the Word of God. Well, over these initial weeks of this study, I'm going to nail down four or five central foundational characteristics of true, true Christianity. And the first one is this, if we're Christian, at its foundation, what it means is that we have a love for the Word of God. So you could say it like this, and if you're taking notes over the next few weeks, I'm going to give you sort of an extended outline, sort of Roman numeral number one is today, and that is this, we believe in the truth of Scripture. This goes all the way back for all all believers of all the time. This is a characteristic of of Christians. This is a characteristic of, of Yahweh followers all the way back to the very beginning. We are a people of the book, the good book, the Holy Bible. We believe, we confess, we affirm the truth of Scripture. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot about this affirmation. It's not simply that we believe there are truths in the Bible that you could find if you wander around the Bible long enough, or, or that the Bible is, is merely sort of a representation of some larger truth, or maybe the overall message has some sort of ringing truth about it. No, it's far more than that. Christians for 20 centuries have hammered out and agreed on what we believe about the Bible. And may, there may be pe- people who call themselves Christians that may disagree with us, but by and large, Christians have come to agreements that we're going to nail down today that's agreed upon that represents Christians and their relationship with the Word of God. All right, so what do we mean when we say we believe in the truth of Scripture? Four things we're going to look at today. Again, you may want to write that down. First of all, we believe Scripture is truly God's Word. We believe Scripture is truly God's Word. You heard this from Pastor Rob earlier, 2 Peter chapter 1, the last part that he read there, verses 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And that word interpretation there doesn't mean like interpreting a language. It means someone's own personal inspiration or personal will or personal uh, uh, ability No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when Scripture was written, a miracle happened. The Bible writer sat down, one of these many Bible writers sat down and He was, according to Peter, they were carried on by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit. He wrote in his language. He wrote from his perspective. He wrote with his vocabulary. He wrote even with his own grammar. But God breathed through him the exact words that he wanted, God wanted, spoken to mankind. This is what is called the doctrine of inspiration. And again, we don't mean inspired like You would say Shakespeare was inspired or some other author was inspired and just had a a, a spell of genius about him for a moment as he wrote down a poem or he wrote down a a work. No, we 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 mean inspired as though a miracle happened. God breathed His words through that writer. We believe that what Peter said here, when this miracle happened, though that person was speaking, though that person was speaking in his language, in his context, from his own vocabulary, from his own experience, to some certain group of people, 
We believe at the same time God was breathing through those biblical writers and every single word that was put down was precisely what God wanted said to mankind. Flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We can't discuss the inspiration of Scripture without going to 2 Timothy Timothy chapter 3, can we? Vital to our understanding. Here's Paul. He's training young Timothy. He was a pastor at the church of Ephesus at that time. Timothy, as you may know, Timothy was facing all kinds of problems, beginning with himself. Timothy had sort of internal issues. He struggled as a, as a pastor. He may have been a little bit insecure. We, we know he was at least initially insecure about his age, about his capabilities. Timothy was insecure. Timothy battled his own calling. Timothy battled some things, as, as many pastors do, as a matter of fact. Timothy faced trouble from inside the church. There are people who were Christians who fought. There were people who were not Christians who called themselves Christians and were members of a church and caused problems. And then there were people on the outside of the church, the, the world at large, and you learn this early in chapter 3 there of 2 Timothy. We, you learn that there's all kinds of problems outside. So the, pre, the, the pressure of the church, the, the problems in the church were caused from the pastor, caused from the people, caused from people outside the church. There's pressure from every direction. Paul's training this young Timothy. Timothy's facing all these problems. And Paul does not say, well, hey, you need to come up with a new program. You need to come up with something really special. You need to, you know, sort of polish up your presentation. Timothy, you need to bring in a ringer. You need to do some, uh, change your music style. Here's some steps to growth. No, Paul says, little brother, you need to keep your nose in the Word of God. Look there at verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. If you have an old translation, it may even say the word inspired. This is the doctrine of inspiration. So, when we say we believe in the truth of Scripture, we mean we believe that the Bible is truly God's Word. Of course, this brings up a question. How do we know that we have all that was spoken of God, and it's not mixed with error, not mixed with false books or that we've not missed a book that should be God's Word? How do we know that these 66 books are indeed the ones which are inspired? Look there at verse 16 again. There's some clues even in this passage that will help us. What's it say? All Scripture. Now, you can just read this and, and, and very quickly understand that that Paul and Timothy agreed on what Scripture was. Paul doesn't say, now, by Scripture, I mean, well, it's this book and this book and not that book and not that book. It's, it's this set and not that set. Let me define to you, young Timothy, what Scripture actually is. No, clearly, Paul and Timothy knew and believed this exact same on, on what Scripture was. So we have to do a little homework. What, what do they mean by Scripture? What do early Jewish people in the first century, what did they agree on 
that was Scripture. And if you look at that word Scripture in the Greek, the word he uses there, in Jewish context of the first century, it's the word graphe. In a Jewish context, in that first century, it had a very specific meaning. The graphe, or, or, or plural, graphe tastes, literally means writings, and the Jews understood these holy writings were the 39 books of the Old Testament, no more, no less. The Old Testament began after uh, some time where the, the ability to verify oral report had diminished. In other words, people lived shorter and shorter lives, and so you couldn't validate or verify truth, and so eventually God appointed prophets to, to inscripturate, to write down His truth for the people and to be carried out from generation to generation. And so, what God did is He said, I'm, uh, I told Moses, who was the first uh, writing prophet, I'm going to appoint other men like you, other prophets, and some of them will write down. Some of them will put these things down. You think about the Ten Commandments, the first sort of uh, part of Scripture, the first Scripture that was essentially created, though we know that it's possible that another prophet existed, perhaps Job existed before that, and wrote some things down. But, but Moses was the representative of the first of the writing prophets. And in Deuteronomy 18, beginning of verse 18, God tells the people, listen, you don't just believe anybody who shows up and says, hey, I'm a prophet, and I can speak on God's behalf. No, you have to put them through a series of tests. And if they pass that series of tests, then indeed, you can consider them a prophet. But if they do not pass those tests, you don't have to do what they say. Just ignore them. Later on, he would say, you can put them to death. <laughs> so, Moses established this. There's to be a test given by all of the people of Israel as to what belonged in the Bible. Now, throughout the centuries, the Israelites put these men to the test, these prophets, and they settled on these 39 books that we have in the Old Testament. The Jews and many other people around them, they wrote many things. There were others who came after the Old Testament. You think about the Catholic Bible, it includes the Apocrypha. But when the Jews looked at what they wrote and whom they tested, they did not include the Apocrypha, most of them anyway. They said, these 39 books, we all agree, are true Word of God. These are the graphetes. So that's what Paul means when he says to Timothy, all Scripture, all graphetes, they, they agreed that, that these 39 books are truly God's Word. They are truly God-breathed. They are inspired. But wait, there's more. Timothy and Paul certainly agreed these are 39 books, but they also believed that Jesus Himself had authorized a new group of people to write Scripture. Who was that? The apostles. Think about John 14, 26, Jesus tells the apostles that He's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance everything that He taught them, and they are to carry that or give that to the church. And so it's actualized in the fact that the apostles oversaw the writing of the New Testament. In other words, God authorized two groups of people to write the inspired Bible. The prophets tested and proved by the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and the apostles who passed the test of apostle, we see in Acts 2, Acts 1, that is, and if they passed the test of apostle, they had the authority, much like the prophets did, to write Scripture. And we see this even in the New Testament. They believed, uh, the people in the New Testament era, the Christians believed that there was the Old Testament, the 39 books, but they also believed that the apostles had the ability, God had granted them a, a special miracle that could happen from time to time when God so granted 
to write Scripture. And we can see this even as we read the New Testament. We see this at the very end when the last uh, apostle dies. We have ostensibly the youngest of all the apostles, the apostle John. Just before he dies, he's writing in the book of Revelation, and what does he say? I warn everyone, Revelation 2, 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Now, clearly, John believed that he was the last one to write Scripture. No one could add to this, not even Joseph Smith, not even the prophet Muhammad. The canon was closed. John understood this. And the people in the New Testament era understood this as well. Again, you look around the New Testament, you find that people believe that the, the apostles had this authority. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, Paul says to young Timothy, the Scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. That is a quote not from the Old Testament, but from the New Testament, from the book of Luke. So clearly, Paul believed that what Luke wrote, under his supervision most likely, what he wrote there was truly Scripture. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, says, be careful, beware of false teachers, because they twist the letters and the words of Paul. He says, they twist the letters of Paul like they do the other Scriptures. Same word, grafetes. Clearly, Paul believed that Peter, like him, or Peter believed that Paul, like himself, along with all the apostles, had the authority to oversee the writing of Scripture just like the prophets of old. Now, many years later, when uh, in early early era, early days of Christianity, when someone wrote something and wanted it to sort of get published, so to speak, and to gain popularity, you know what they would do? They would slap the name of an apostle on it because they knew that Christians. Would, would take it if it was apostolic. They, they might even believe it's the Word of God. So they'd slap the name of an apostle on it. All that to say this, when we say as Christians we believe in the truth of Scripture, it means we believe that these 66 books of the Bible, no less and no more, are truly God's Word. These are truly God's Word. All right, what else does it mean that we believe in the truth of Scripture? We believe that, number two, Scripture being God's Word, is truly perfect. Scripture is truly perfect. We don't just believe that these 66 books can contain some of God's Word, or that it sort of represents some moral truths that God wanted to convey. No, it is God's Word. It is God's revelation to mankind. And God being God, He has the ability to reveal to mankind perfectly His Word. He's God. He has the power to do it. He has the power to work that miracle. When that Scripture writer sits down, Peter or Paul or whoever it is, Moses, God is God, and He has the ability to work that miracle and, and convey to humanity His Word, and then, and then He has the ability to, to organize history so that that Word would be preserved through the ages. And so we believe every last word is inspired, and the Bible as a whole is inspired altogether. That's what's called the verbal plenary idea of inspiration. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Well, let me, let's put a few things down as we think about the perfection of God's Word. There's a few things to keep in mind. First of all, it, it, we believe the Bible is perfect, the Scripture is perfect in its original form. 
right? A translation is what we use in church, right? We're using the English Standard Version, and that's a translation of the Bible. You think of other translations like the New American Standard. These are English translations, and those translations are really good, word-for-word translations of the Bible. So good, these translations are, that even if you don't read Greek and Hebrew and can't pick up what uh, Bibles and what they're originally written in, you don't have to worry that you're reading something that's just full of mistakes. Dozens of men, sometimes hundreds of people have, have poured thousands of hours into these translations to make sure that it's true to what the original says. So we don't have to worry. You don't have to worry as you read your Bible, whether it's in English or another language translation. But keep in mind that there's something behind what you're reading. There is an original, what they call autograph. There is the original thing that Paul wrote or Peter wrote or Moses wrote. There is an original thing, and that is what we believe is inspired. Not translations are not inspired. They're just done by people. It's the original autograph that's inspired. So that's the first thing to keep in mind as you read the Bible. And sometimes we need a little help. Sometimes translations are mistaken, not the original Word of God, but sometimes the translation itself does make a mistake, and it's important to look at uh, different views and different understandings of what things should be translated as to help you understand. Second thing that we think about when we think about uh, the Bible being perfect, the Bible in its originals is perfect, meaning in those original autographs, it has zero errors. There are no mistakes. There are no factual or scientific or geographical or historical mistakes. There certainly are no theological mistakes. There are no errors. This is what's called the doctrine of inerrancy. Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie, meaning we can go to Him and trust that what He has said, what He has spoken... It's true, and all of it's true. We don't have to have a little seed of doubt in our mind wondering, well, I don't know. No, it's all true. The school that I first went to for my bachelor's degree, the professors rejected this idea. They thought it was ridiculous to think that the Bible, in its original form, in its original autographs, was error-free. They would regularly go through Scripture and try to prove to us, to show to us mistakes. And boy, they were so convincing. But later, thanks to some great professors in seminary, every one of those mistakes was proved foolish and untrue. There was always a helpful explanation, understanding. In fact, what it, what it revealed is that uh, those attempts at, at finding mistakes really were, were biased. They went in with an assumption that there were mistakes and then just sort of assumed, uh, with that presupposition, they assumed that they could find mistakes. Ladies and gentlemen, this ever struck you up in your Bible, when you sit down and read your Bible, it is the only error-free, mistake-free book that you can pick up. It is absolutely perfectly true. And it's an errant because it is God's perfect Word. Another thing you can put down under the idea of it being perfect, it's perfect in that it's incapable of contradiction. This is very closely related to the doctrine of inerrancy. It's called the doctrine of infallibility. It doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't present a worldview that is conflicting in in of itself. When people devise false doctrine from Scripture, it's their fault. It's not the Scripture's fault. They're they're the ones that misunderstand, not 
The Bible's not an error. We heard this earlier from 1 Peter. We have the Word, and this Word is fully confirmed. It's fully confirmed to be true. It's fully confirmed to be completely true, all of it true. Peter says, therefore, it's completely reliable. The fourth thing to note in terms of the perfection of God's Word is that it's perfectly understandable. It's clear. A child can understand the gospel. A child can understand the central truths of Scripture. This is known as a perspicuity of Scripture. The Bible is clear. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not confused. But again, the problem is not because the Bible's not clear. The problem is because we bring to the Bible all of our baggage, misunderstandings. We bring to it, especially in the 20th century, we, we live 20 centuries away from things that happen at the, at the very end of the Bible. And so we bring to it struggle to understand. We bring to it our own baggage. You look through generations and different generations struggle with different parts of the Bible, and that was just contextual. There are parts that we seem to understand clearly that other generations, perhaps even other cultures can understand. Why? Because we bring to the Bible all kinds of our own error, our own baggage, our own misunderstanding. But the Bible, especially that main central message, the, the message of the gospel, is perfectly clear. It is perspicuous. We can give it to a children. Our youngsters can, can know and understand the gospel even at a young age. Through ordinary means, the Westminster Confession explains, through ordinary means, any person can understand the Bible. Why? Because it is clear. The Bible is clear. The Bible is infallible. The Bible is inerrant, all of this in its original form. And we're so grateful for all those thousands of scholars who have spent many, many years of study poring over tens of thousands of manuscripts, so much so that we can compare all those manuscripts and they're 99% in agreement with one another. They provide for us these fantastic translations of the perfect Word. All right, what have we said so far? We believe Scripture is truly God's Word. We believe Scripture is truly perfect. Third, by saying we believe in the truth of Scripture, it means we believe that Scripture is truly powerful. Scripture is truly powerful. Of course, this goes all the way back to creation, right? God speaks, and miracles happen. Worlds, universe is created. And it's created in such a way, it's, it's created with the appearance of age, and you have Adam and, and, and Eve, and you have this garden that's, that's seemingly been there for a long time, full-grown trees, full-grown animals, oceans that look like they've been developed over many, many years, and it's all with the Word, the power of God's Word. He just speaks, and it's there. From the very beginning of the Bible, we're presented with a God whose Word carries with it power. Look there again at 2 Timothy. The sacred writings, verse 15, inspired Word of God is able to make you wise for salvation. What kind of salvation? It's of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. James 1.18 tells us how God saves people. How does God bring people to regeneration? He brought us forth by the word of truth. 
Titus 3 tells us that the truth of Christ our Savior was applied to not just our minds, but to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And, and because of that, we are regenerated. Life comes to a dead spirit. Perhaps the best illustration of this is this, the story of Jesus and Lazarus, right? Here is a man who is completely dead. His ears cannot hear. His eyes cannot see. His mouth cannot speak. He, his mind has stopped moving. It's not even, his mind is not even powerful enough to make his heart beat or to take a breath. A man is wrapped all the way. He's completely dead. Jesus says two words, come forth, and instantly that man comes to life. And what a great picture of salvation. God's Word comes to the heart, and it comes to the heart in such a way, we read about this in 1 Thessalonians, it comes to, to the heart in such a way that it brings someone to life, spiritually speaking. They hear the Word, and it's as though God has said to your dead soul, come forth, and suddenly all these truths are real and life-changing. You think about our study of the parables of uh, in Matthew, the parable of the soils, that very first parable in Matthew 13, the Word is implanted into this soil, and suddenly the life is there. What else is the Word powerful to do? Look there at 2 Timothy again. How else is the Word powerful? What else can it do? Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, and we'll get to this later, but it's good for the church. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word is powerful to equip. For how many good works? For every good work. What is this? This is the process of sanctification. So, the Word of God is powerful to sanctify, not just to save, but then to grow you, to mature you process is sometimes slow, sometimes it's fast, sometimes you go through moments where it's very quick and the Word of God is coming to you and making changes day by day. Sometimes it's a little slower and it takes time just to, just to massage your heart and change you. But the Word of God administered to a saved person results in the process of sanctification, the spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. It comes to us, the Word of God comes to us in times of personal devotion. It comes to us in times of, of corporate worship where we sing the Word, where the Word of God is preached. It comes in times of, of discipleship when someone is ministering the Word of God to you. When that happens to a person's heart, they grow spiritually. The Word of God is powerful to do that. It has true power. All right, I know we have the Lord's table here in a moment. In this last point, I want to make it brief. I'm actually going to cover this last point more thoroughly when we get to... Uh, a doctrine called the doctrine of sola scriptura. If the Word of God applied to the heart by the Spirit is what saves and sanctifies, then the Word of God is all we need in terms of divine revelation. That is to say, when we, what we believe about Scripture, fourthly, is this, Scripture is truly sufficient. Scripture is truly sufficient. Sufficient means enough. There's no need to look for other revelations of God in your heart or elsewhere. Elsewhere, It's enough. All that we need for spiritual life and godliness is, is found in the pages of this book. Back there in 2 Timothy, that church was going through all kinds of things. Timothy facing his own temptation, his own problems, the church being attacked from within and without, the culture contrary to the church. 
Paul does not tell Timothy, Timothy, you need new ideas, you need new revelation, you need some kind of spiritual miracle that happens. No, he says, Timothy, put your nose in the Scripture. And he goes on to say, I want you to administer the Scripture to the people of God. Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by His appearing, preach the Word. You're going through problems, your church is going through problems, your, your society is encroaching upon the church and tempting the church and drawing the church away. What you need is not some new revelation, some extra biblical thing. What you need is more Bible. Stick your face in the Word, Timothy. It will equip you for every good work. And Timothy, administer that powerful Word to your people. It is sufficient to equip them, just like you, it is sufficient to equip them for every good work. The Word of God, the Scripture, is truly sufficient. That's what we mean when we say we believe in the truth of Scripture. Well, like I said, I'll get to this more, especially as it pertains to church philosophy and how we operate, how we run, why we do what we do and how we do it. But in the end, we believe Scripture is truly perfect. Truly the Word of God, this collection of 66 books is truly what He's given to us, and it's powerful, and it's enough, it's sufficient. In fact, let me close by reading to you the very first statement. If you open up our webpage and go to the section that says what we believe, the very first statement of our statement of faith, our declaration of faith, which we codified a few years ago, this is what it says, and then we'll close. We believe that the Holy Bible was breathed out, that is, inspired by God, written by men, and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. It has God for its author, His glory for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. That it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Let's pray. Father, we proclaim to You today, we believe in Your Word. This is Your Word, this book. We are people of this book. Lord, as we think about even the ideas of our confession and what we believe and our identity as a church and, and the fact that we are Christian, this this comes to mind first, that we believe in the truth of Scripture. We believe that, God, You have the ability to, to convey specific truth, specific doctrine and teachings and, and history and, and, the, and, and the, the gospel to us. We believe You have that power, and You indeed executed that power by giving us the Word. And, Lord, then You providentially protected those truths throughout history, so that even now, thousands of years later from when the first word was put down, thousands of years later, we have exactly what you said way back then. Lord, thank you for all those professors and all those scholars who spent the many, many, many years of their lives really showing and demonstrating for us that indeed what we have here is true to what was written many, many years ago, that it is to be trusted. It is to be believed. 
And so, Lord, we proclaim that this is God's Word and we believe it is true. Help us live like this. Help us rest our lives in this very truth. Help us understand that, what if there's people here who don't know you, that, that life and truth and gospel can be found on the pages of this Scripture. And if we're believers, Lord, no matter what we face, whether it's, it's negative and it's hardship and it's trials or temptation or failure, Lord, that the answer is Your Word. Or whether, Lord, we as Christians are facing great opportunities and joy, we pray that we would bury ourselves in this, Lord, to, to arm ourselves, repair ourselves, to ready ourselves. We do that by studying Your Word. Help us be, Lord, as a church, more committed to Your Word than ever. Help us find that joy. Lord, sometimes we have to fight for that joy. Help us find the joy of reading and studying and knowing Your Word. And then, Lord, grant us by Your Spirit the desire to obey Your Word and proclaim it until the end of age. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.